listening to the Bible 126 show. We're in the book of Judges. The book of Judges um, is taking a turn that for me was a little unpredictable. The book of Judges is this bridge between the Torah, and many people sort of view Joshua as part of the Torah, sort of like a sixth book of Moses or something, um, speaking with my tongue in my cheek. You have the five books of Moses called the Torah and then Joshua. And from Samuel on, you got the kings. Well, there's a bridge between the, the Joshua, the conquest of the land, and the kings, and this book of Judges, which is a dismal history. And it's littered with some interesting characters and some wild, crazy episodes. So it's a very colorful book in that sense. It should be rated R, of course, because there's some pretty wild stuff going on, a lot of violence and so on. What startles me as I really get into it for this study is how prophetic the book is. Uh, Many books I tend to view prophetically for lots of reasons. The Midrash says that prophecy is pattern, not just prediction. And as you understand how God operates, you'll discover that there's a futurity of almost all the books. But it startled me to really see that in the book of Judges. And so uh, let's just tune ourselves to that. Uh, We had an introduction last time. We're going into chapters 2 and 3. The Hebrew name for the book is a sophatim, which means rulers. It comes from the word shafat, to put things right, and then to rule. So it's Judges is, a, is the English title, but it's uncomfortable. We think of Judges as a judiciary, as a, someone sitting in a court. The term really here is a collective term for leadership that came up from the ranks to solve a problem. All kinds, from all walks of life, we'll look at a dozen people that were had nothing more than their availability, and God raised them up to resolve a problem. Now, Joshua can be looked at as a book, The Inheritance Conquered, when they conquered the land. For 40 years they wandered in the wilderness, aspiring to and finally entering into the promised land. And Joshua's the conquest of that land. The book of Judges is that inheritance despised. They're going to learn the same lesson over and over and over again, or putting it another way, they never seem to learn the pattern that they're into. And we'll look at that very carefully. Let's take a look at the characteristics of the time. The time's between three and 400 years from the time the close of Joshua to the beginning of Samuel. And uh, there was no king in Israel. That phrase will be repeated in the book uh, at least four times. And the other expression that repeats itself uh, is, is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But in the context of that phrase, that's an indictment. It's an expression intended to convey how dismal the morality was, how dark the days were. Everyone was doing right what was right in their own eyes. Another characteristic of the time is there was a widespread disregard for the Word of God. In fact, that really haunts them. That continually gets the nation in trouble. As a result of all of that, they are enslaved by their enemies. They go from one servitude to another. There are six major servitudes uh, in the book. Now, what startled me as you look at these four characteristics that almost every commentator will highlight as sort of a characteristic of the book, they describe today. That's today. There's no king in Israel. That's part of the problem. Everyone did what's right in their eyes. Relativism. That's the value structure that's being inculcated in our kids that's through our whole society. You have your truth, I have mine. And of course, there's a widespread disregard for the Word of God. The biblical illiteracy 
Even among Christians is shocking. Even among pastors. We had a, had a luncheon today. had to come up with some pastors. They, uh, candidate admission that many pastors don't know their Bible. They learned a lot of other things in seminary, but they really don't know their Bible. That's a, that's a shocker. In fact, it's interesting that people who are looking for churches are looking for Bible-teaching churches. We have calls from abroad. I told you the interesting incident we had. A guy called from Finland to our London office. I said, can you recommend a church in Finland? The guy says, well, I have to look into it for you. Are you a Christian? He says, oh, yes. Well, how would you become a Christian if you don't have a church? Oh, on the Internet. And they, well, tell me about it. He said, we're, stum- we're surfing the net. We ran into the Coiny House website and, and uh, Chuck and Nancy's materials, and, and they came to the Lord, and there's a group that uses that as their church. And they were discerning enough to realize that the churches they were sampling weren't Bible-teaching churches. Traditional churches in many respects, but not Bible teaching churches. So they were groping for that kind of, they came to the conference, we happened to have a conference going on in Portsmouth a few weeks later, they came to the conference, I baptized them in the English Channel. It was a glorious time. So the disregard for the Word of God. And, uh, and as a result, we're enslaved by our enemies, our enemies of materialism, enemies of all kinds of vanities and so forth. There were, in the first two chapters, there are four stages of decline suggested. The first is fighting the enemy. We saw the victories of Judah last time. Uh, Bezek and uh, Jerusalem, Hebron, Debir, and Hormah, and also the Philistine cities, at least three of them, Gaza, Eshkelon, and Ekron. In all cases, Judah conquered them, but not thoroughly enough. We also had the victory of Joseph with regards to Bethel in the last chapter. The second stage, after fighting it, there were the, in the first two chapters... There are four stages of decline suggested. The first is fighting the enemy. We saw the victories of Judah last time. Uh, Bezek and uh, Jerusalem, Hebron, Debir, and Hormah, and also the Philistine cities, at least three of them, Gaza, Eshkelon, and Ekron. In all cases, Judah conquered them, but not thoroughly enough. We also had the victory of Joseph with regards to Bethel in the last chapter. The second stage, after fighting it, we're in the book of Judges. The book of Judges um, is taking a turn that for me was a little unpredictable. The book of Judges is this bridge. There were the, In the first two chapters, there are four stages of decline suggested. The first is fighting the enemy. We saw the victories of Judah last time. Uh, Bezek and uh, Jerusalem, Hebron, Debir, and Hormah, and also the Philistine cities, at least three of them, Gaza, Eshkelon, and Ekron. In all cases, Judah conquered them, but not thoroughly enough. We also had the victory of Joseph with regards to Bethel in the last chapter. The second stage, after fighting the enemy, is sparing the enemy. Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan all failed to overcome their enemies. They had a a casual victory here and there, but they didn't do what God told them to do. Very disturbing thing. And all of this is characterized by the neglect of the Word of God, the failure to read Deuteronomy every sabbatical year during the Feast of Tabernacles. The priests were supposed to read publicly, out loud, the book of Deuteronomy at the Feast of Tabernacles on every sabbatical year. Every seven years, every citizen would hear the book of Deuteronomy if they'd followed God's instruction. Which means when they heard chapter 7, the whole chapter hammers away, God tells them when they get in the land to wipe out their enemies. Don't compromise. Every man, woman, and child of certain tribes are to be... Now, that shocks us. 
We need to understand that whole background and why. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy 31, God promises them that if they'll trust Him, He will have them prevail over their enemies if they're walking with Him. And uh, they didn't read that, they didn't apply that, and that caused problems. The third step was then imitating the enemy. They made peace with them, they had them uh, good neighbor policy kind of thing, and pretty soon they were imitating their enemy, their children were intermarrying with them, and then they started facing the idol worship that came with it. And the fourth step is obeying the enemy. And, and they would uh, be in subje- uh, subjection to them. And chapter 2 is going to hammer these last two of these things. So let's jump into chapter 2. We reviewed part of this chapter last time, so by going through it today, it will also act as a review for us from last time. Judges chapter 2, verse 1. And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and I brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. That's just the introduction. The angel of the Lord, that's a strange phrase, very misleading to many of us. Most scholars recognize this as what they call as a theophany, the visible and bodily appearance of the second person of the Trinity uh, before an incarnation. In other words, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ prior to his incarnation. This is very prominent in the days of Moses. We find it in Exodus 3 and Numbers 22, also in the book of Joshua chapter 5. It was the captain of the Lord's host that fought the battle of Jericho. The song has it cute. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Not right. Read the last few verses of chapter 5 of Joshua. After dinner one night, he gets confronted by an angel with a sword. And uh, he says, Are you, and he challenges him like a sentry. Are you for us or our enemies? And the angel says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And he commands worship, which tells you he's not an angel in the usual sense, because angels never allowed to do that. Who is this? Who is the personage? Jesus Christ. And he uses the very phrase that Joshua would remember from Mount Sinai when he told him to take off his shoes and so forth. Yes, uh, Jesus Christ's voice was the voice of the burning bush. He claims that in John chapter 8, by the way. This uh, angel Lord appears to, will appear to Gideon when we get to chapter 6 and to the parents of Samson in chapter 13. And he was deity for he's called Jehovah in, in uh, Joshua 5 and 6 and Zechariah 3. He's also called God in Genesis 32. So this term, the angel of the Lord, is a little misleading because you miss that. You think it's some kind of messenger. It's a very special messenger. He's distinct from Yahweh on the one hand. So it indicates it's already there a plurality of personages in the, in the Trinity, even in the Old Testament, by the way. Now, the New Testament allusions to the angel of the Lord that you find in John 12, 1 Corinthians 10, John 8, Hebrews 11, indicates that the, the, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was none other than Jesus Christ. But I want you, you can just tell this from the grammar of the passage. Whoever this guy is, he speaks as God in the first person. I made you go up out of Egypt. I have brought you to the land. I swear to your fathers, and I will never break my covenant with you. Who's speaking here? Jehovah. But the angel of the Lord being, the messenger of the Lord being the, the idiom here. He goes on, he says, And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this, is what his commandments were. Ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? And why are you disobedient? Why don't you, that's what he's asking. Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. So that's compromise may sound good in a political science class in school, but it's alien when regarding the commandments of God. Compromise is failure. 
He goes on, verses 4 or 5, And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. Boy, I can imagine. Apparently the people heard him. That's what the text implies. Not passed along from, you know, they heard him. He spake these words unto all the children of Israel. And they wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, which means weeping. And uh, they sacrificed there unto the Lord. That sounds good, but you'll discover it's sort of superficial, because we'll see what happens next. When Joshua had let the people go, and the children of Israel went every man to his, unto his inheritance to possess the land, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. The tone here is going to make a contrast with them, that is Joshua and the first generation of leaders, things were pretty good. But see, chapter 2 is summarizing, and it's, it's going to give you a perspective of what followed. Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old, and they buried him in the border of inheritance in Timnath-Heres in the Mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill Gash. That's about 18 miles north by northwest of Jerusalem for those of you that want to pay. We'll, on another case, I'll put up, I'll get some graphs and slides to put all this in geographic perspective. I won't take the time to do that tonight. And all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. That's the tragedy that lurks behind all the rest that's coming is we're dealing with the next generation. The real problem is their memories are short. They forgot what the Lord had done. This is the pattern, unfortunately, in our lives too. How, quick, how quickly we forget. Probably in each of our lives, our family lives, there's been miracles. Medical miracles, okay, miracles. And we're so appreciative for a while. And how quickly we forget. If we, if we, if we took a time right now, we could probably call up things that, things we hadn't thought about for a while. Shocking, astonishing miracles in our lives. And uh, George Orwell, in his novel, 1984, said, Who controls the past controls the future. And who controls the present controls the past. So the people in charge now can rewrite the past to control the future. And the revisionists in our own culture are still at it. I'll never forget when Ann and I tried, we were in Washington, D.C., and we had extra, a little extra time one afternoon. And... Uh, we decided to go get some American history, go to the Museum of American History. We went to the museum, could not find any American history in the American in the Museum of American History on the mall. And, you know, the various Smithsonian things. We found a lot of uh, uh, displays of the China that various first ladies... We were looking for founding fathers, sacred documents, all that sort of thing. Nothing. All stripped. Had a lot of exhibits about how we abused the Indians. The revisionists have stri stripped the place. I, 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 maybe under the current administration that may have changed, but I may be out of date. Let's hope I am. Okay, verse 11, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. That's plural for uh, Baal, which is a name for many, there are many variations of pagan worship that go under the name Baal. Basically, he's the god of storms, the god of war. Mars is his symbol. And once you understand that, you understand why it was Elijah that called on Baal to bring rain on Mount Carmel. Because he presumably was the god of storms, you see. Verse 12, And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, and they brought them, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord, and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Now Ashtaroth is the female consort, if you will, of Baal, in the, in the concept of pagan worship. 
Uh, Ashtaroth was the moon goddess of the Phoenicians. He's the, she was the Ishtar of the Akkadians or Assyrians. That's the Astarte of the Greeks, who's mentioned all through the scripture in Jeremiah, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. That's the Easter of Rome, the goddess of fertility, Ishtar to the Akkadians and Easter to the Romans. It relates to the goddess of fertility. That's how you can get eggs and rabbits together as symbols of fertility. You always wonder why we, you know, we have rabbits laying eggs at Easter? Rabbits don't lay eggs, you know? It's the golden egg of Astarte. It all goes back to the pagan uh, traditions of the past. And uh, uh, Ashtoreth is also called the Queen of Heaven in Jeremiah 44. If those of you that are of a Catholic background are getting uncomfortable, let it be so and we'll move on. (laughs) Verse 14, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and delivered them into the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. In other words, they weren't being faithful, so not only did they not win, he made sure they always lost. So they they forsook the Lord, so they forfeited what he'd promised. And uh, they were being enslaved by sin. And I won't take the time here, but you can put in your notes that Psalm 106 from 34 and following is an eloquent paraphrase of Judges chapter 2, verse 11 and following. There's a parallel passage in the Psalms. It's very, very eloquent. I was tempted to throw it into the discussion, but we're going to try to get through chapter 3 too. So just put it in your notes and read Psalm 106 as backgrounders as you go here. See, on the one hand, when they were confronted with enemies, the enemies won. But when they got distressed and cried out, then God would raise up a deliverer. And we call him a judge. But the word judge, to many of us is in, in our parlance, is misleading. But deliverer, a, a hero, a leader. If you just use the, if you think of it more of a generic hero, it's more descriptive because they're diverse people. Some educated, some not. There's uh, 12 guys, one woman. Uh, there's nothing in common except they were the hero of the moment, raised by God. So nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, or these leaders, or so forth, which delivered them out of the hand who spoiled them. Now, this the word delivered is yasha, which is saved, delivered, or liberated. And it's from that term we get the word judges, shafat, which is to save, to rescue, to govern, to put right what was wrong. So the term judges will keep tripping over until we get realize that it's not judges as we use it in our vocabulary. Each one of the judges will have limited victories, and we'll celebrate those as we go. Nevertheless, they'll be simply echoes in a symphony of defeat, the nations going down. Chapter 2, verse 17, And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, and they went whoring after others. Notice, as soon as they cried out, and God raised up a judge, and he took care of everything, as soon as things were peaceful again, they went right back to the... They, there, no learning took place. Learning is defined as the modification of behavior. There's no change of behavior. Same cycle. But whoring after other gods, they bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass, when the judge was dead, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. You know, you would think... We, we read about these people. We think of Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog returns to his vomit, you know? And so the fool returns to his folly. We, we, 
it's easy for us to get very, very critical. And yet, we have to stand back and say, what about us? Don't we do the same thing? You know, when our, when our, when our kid is sick, boy, we pray, man, and a miracle comes and it's fine, and we quickly slip back into our own priorities, don't we? So the dismal cycle continues. See, unless we diligently re-examine and maintain our priorities in His Word, and I don't mean just day to day, moment by moment, taking every thought captive, we start stumbling. We don't, we just don't learn. But moving on, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and He said, because that this people hath transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. He's going to spare them from time to time, but he's not going to drive those nations out. Why? Because he's going to, they're, they're nations that are there harassing them are going to serve his purposes. He says, and, the, and through them, God says, I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily. Neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. You know, this cycle of nations... We're, we see it so dramatically described here in the Scripture. They sin, they turn away from God, they, their, their enemies are used as a form of instrument, they oppress them, they scream about the oppressing, so God will raise a hero, relieve the oppression, they go right, it just keeps going. But it's not just a cycle, it's a spiral downward. It's interesting how there have been great scholars, uh, Toynbee, Jim Black, uh, uh, there's been half a dozen major milestone studies of all civilizations that have come up, and they all come up with the same conclusion, that there's a cycle of nations. They have a birth, they have a, a predictable cycle, and, they, and a death. Alexander Tyler in 1750 is the summary I'll use, but I could use any of them, Toynbee or... From bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith they go get great courage. From great courage, they get liberty. The liberty produces abundance. The abundance produces complacency. The complacency degenerates to apathy. The apathy to dependency. And the dependency, back to bondage. That's the cycle. That's the cycle. It goes right on through. And you can't look at a chart like this without asking yourself, gee, where are we on the chart? You know, this country was born with great courage and achieved liberty. And that liberty has produced a, an abundance that is the envy of the world. And that abundance has produced complacency. The complacency, apathy. And the apathy, dependency. The dependency will bring us back into bondage. That cycle normally takes about two, two centuries for most cultures, interestingly enough. Chapter 2, we looked at part of it last time. I went through it again just to, to give us a good running start on chapter 3. In this chapter, we're going to encounter the five lords of the Philistines. We'll, we'll encounter the king of Moab, who will be addressed as Lord. But the Lord is mentioned 15 times in 30 verses, and that one is, a, is the one that's really in charge. Who's that? Yahweh, Jehovah, Yehovah, however you want to say it. A.T. Pearson said, history is his story. T.S. Eliot, the poet, made history. He says, destiny waits in the hand of God, not in the hands of statesmen. See, God never violates human responsibility, but he does rule and overrule the affairs of men. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. 
only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, or at least such as knew nothing thereof. Now, teaching war seems to sound strange, but God is seeing this as also a training ground. Because when we get to Samuel, Saul, and David, they're going to need trained armies in order to establish the kingdom. And so much of what they're going to take advantage of is what the bitter lessons they're going to learn uh, in the various episodes in these three centuries we're dealing with here in the book of Judges. So let's go to verse 3. Namely, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites and that dwelt in uh, Mount Lebanon from the Mount uh, Baal Hermon unto the entering of Hamath. The Sidonians, we more commonly known as the Phoenicians, Tyre, Sidon, up, up the coast of there is a very seafaring people. The Hivites are thought to be the Horites, which uh, previously were associated with the upper Mesopotamian region of the Mitannis. And the Horites are best known in Joshua's time as the, as the Gibeonites. You may recall all of that, that confederacy of city-states we encountered in Joshua 9. Now the tribe of Judah conquered but was not able to hold the Philistines. We noticed that last time that they conquered those three of three of the five cities, but uh, they couldn't endure on the plains because the, the Philistines had these iron chariots. They had a monop- Because of their seafaring trade, they had a monopoly on iron in the area, and that was a technological advantage. So they could only, the, the Israel, Israelites could only hold them in the mountains where the chariots are not an advantage. And so uh, they sort of developed an uneasy armistice between the Philistines and Israel. We'll see episodes where it gets tense, but the point is they don't wipe them out, and because of their lack of faith, faithfulness, God doesn't get behind them to wipe them out. So they're there as a thorn in the side, which is exactly what God said he was going to do. Eventually, under Saul and David, they will defeat the Philistines, but not until Israel gets the act together. Now, part of the problem with all these tribes that are co-living with them in the land is that they start adopting their idols. Sometimes Satan comes as a roaring lion, as he's mentioned in 1 Peter 5.8. Sometimes he comes to deceive, as a serpent to deceive. And he, what he couldn't do externally, he wins by going internally. And so, uh, so they were there to prove Israel by them, to know whether they would hearken to the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded the fathers by Moses. It's interesting to note, both in the case of the judges and also in our personal lives, that collapse of the life of a believer is usually not a blowout. It's a slow leak. It's a slow leak. It comes a step at a time. We'll see this happen in the book of Judges. It won't be a single decisive battle. It'll erode slowly with compromises with their enemies. And a slow leak will dissipate their spirituality and destroy their potency. Verse 5, the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they, took their, and they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. In other words, they intermarried. That's contrary to God's law. And we can go through Genesis 24, 26, uh, 27, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7, Joshua 23, and other places. It, it, it's all through the, the call to be separate was clearly emphasized. Verse 7, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam and the groves. Now, that just typically happens. The same thing happened to Solomon. He got all these foreign wives and pretty soon he was erecting idols on the temple grounds of all places. When it says, by the way, Balaam, we're familiar with Baal, the groves is sort of an innocuous term unless you understand what they are. 
Up on the hillsides, they took the trees and made phallic symbols out of them. And, they, and so when you hear the word groves all through the Old Testament, they are asherim, they're, they're uh, uh, elements that were uh, associated with their highly, in fact, astonishingly immoral religious practices. And, of course, the idolaters gradually stole the hearts of the mates, the mates that were, were uh, worshiping, uh, trying to worship God. And uh, Solomon was the wisest of men, and he fell in the same trap. We always extol Solomon as such a wise guy, and yet uh, he made the same mistake. We dwell with the world, and we relate to the world, and pretty soon we end up worshiping the world. And what Psalm 135.18 points out to us is that we become like what we worship. Is the world harsh and unforgiving? Well, we start worshiping the world. What happens to you? You start becoming harsh and unforgiving. You can go through the list of whatever you worship. That's why you want to worship Christ. Because if you worship Christ, you become like Him. You become like what you're worshiping. Anyway, let's go on to verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. Now, this guy was a pretty aggressive organizer. His name means, by the way, double darkness or doubly wicked. And uh, since Israel was acting like pagans, God treated them like pagans. He saw, they were acting like slaves. He treated them like slaves. That's the expression is he sold them. Uh, he sold them out, so to speak, to, to, to their enemies. And uh, four times in the book of Judges, we find that expression where God sold them out because that's his way of getting them, getting their attention. Here it's translated king of Mesopotamia. In the NIV it says the king of Aram Natharim, a Syria of two rivers. In any case, uh, clearly this guy is very strange to be intruding so from so far away. He's not a neighbor. He's over from Mesopotamia, from Babylon, a long way. So now since the deliverer is going to be raised up here, we're going to see, meet the first of the deliverers here in a minute. He comes from the tribe of Judah. That implies that since he, if he's from Mesopotamia, he would have come down and attacked from the north. He must have been all the way down to the south of the land before God raises up a deliverer. And he's going to raise up a guy by the name of Othniel. We'll pick it up in verse 9. When the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, you may recall chapter 1 when uh, Caleb said, who can... Who's, who, you know, who can succeed? You know, whoever would would get his daughter to wife, or Othniel did, so he won Caleb's daughter as a wife. And that's the same guy that we encountered in uh, chapter 1. I might mention there's lots of scholastic discussion of exactly what the relationship was, because it looks to us like he's a son-in-law. He's the, manager, he's the guy that captured Hebron and married Caleb's daughter. But the exact blood relationship is confusing because of the way the Hebrew, the Hebrew, the term sons and so forth is not precise. We use a son like the direct descendant of the father. A son is also used as just a, some that derives from the father, maybe a generation or two, so it's complicated. Uh, it could be that he's a, uh, a younger brother. It could be that he's a nephew. It's, it's complicated. I won't take you through all that because it's not material to our purpose. Just be aware of the fact that there, there are some ambiguities in, in the, the background of some of these relationships. But in any case, he's certainly married to Caleb's daughter, and he's certainly a courageous, impressive guy. And uh, we don't have to untangle his family tree to discover this guy has courageous faith, and he's got a willingness to face the enemy, and uh, depending on God for victory. That's the key. We're going to discover all kinds of people doing all kinds of crazy things, doing all kinds of wild results, but the one thing in common, and the only thing in common, 
is they're all trusting God for the result. And that's the key. So uh, let's go to verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came. See, that? there's his victory right there. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And, uh, and he judged Israel and went, out and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushan Rithaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Cushan Rithaim. Uh, we don't have the details, but it's, it's implied here, Zechariah 4, 6, not by power, not by might, but how? But by my spirit, says the Lord. Jesus said the same thing in a sense in Acts 1, 8. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, and so on. This is the secret of Othniel's strength. It's the, it'll be the secret of Gideon's strength in Judges 6, Jephthah's strength in, in uh, Judges 11, Samson's strength in two different ways in 14 and 15. And that same key has to be ours today. No matter what kind of training you've had, no matter what kind of liabilities you have, whatever kind of assets you have, doesn't matter. If, you, if the Spirit of the Lord is with you, you've got victory assured. If He's not, you don't have a chance. So let's go to verse 11. And the land had rest for 40 years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. He apparently not only won the battle against this confederating king, but he also uh, apparently was able to bring peace to the land for 40 years. So that's a great period of time. He rescued them from bondage and then served as their judge. So you never want to underestimate the impact that one person can have if he's filled with the Spirit. But now we've come to the second judge, and this, <laughs> this is a colorful story about Ehud. The dismal cycle continues. They'd be a, they would have been a forgotten nation if God hadn't loved them and chosen them for himself. Uh, they would have perished in Egypt if uh, God, uh, or in the wilderness if God hadn't cared for them. They would have died on the battlefields of Canaan if uh, God hadn't given them victory over their enemies. They would be wallowing in moral sewage if God hadn't given them the law and had priests to teach it to them. You can ask, where was the breakdown in the nation? Why do they keep having these problems? And the answer is the parents. The parents were instructed to teach the kids the ways of God. That's all through Deuteronomy 6, 11, Genesis 18, Job, elsewhere. And they failed to do that. I won't push that too hard. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of us have been diligent teaching our children the ways of God. The uncomfortable reality to, for many of us is that we may be very be guilty of just the same failings that put Israel in the dismal position they were in the period of the judges. But let's go on to verse 12. The children of Israel did evil and again in the sight of the Lord. See, after those 40 years of peace. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. Now this guy, uh, Eglon, is quite a character. The guy from Mesopotamia, the previous guy, came a long way. And that seemed a little strange. These guys are neighbors. Moab, Ammon, and Amalek. The, uh, the, not only are they neighbors, they're relatives. They're relatives of the Jews. Lot, the nephew of Abraham, was the ancestor of both Moab and Ammon. Uh, and uh, Esau, the brother of Jacob, was the ancestor of Amalek. So these are technically relatives of the Jews, but they hate the Jews. They're the traditional enemies of the Jews. This guy, Eglon, we'll learn in a few more verses. <laughs> the Bible says... <laughs> was a very fat man. It's the only guy in the Bible that that is said of. Some historians speculate that he had a 
400-inch waistline. He certainly was the Olympic champion of the Long Belt Society. He was a heavy guy. He could have been the... Uh, in fact, I have a picture of him here. I'll show you in a minute. But let's move on. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. 18 years they were slaves then to the king of Moab who had aligned these other guys in a confederacy. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, see, they finally wake up, they cried to the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. Ehud is our hero of the day. Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. I'll come back to that. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, it says he's left-handed. Now, this is an unfortunate, superficial translation. By the way, just one, one other thing. Uh, you notice that when he made his confederation, it was Ammon, uh, with Ammonites and Amalek, he set up his capital in the city of palm trees. We know from Deuteronomy 34, verse 3, that the city of palm trees was what we know as Jericho. Jericho is Beth which means the city of the moon god. Jericho is where he sets up, because there's an oasis there, he sets up his capital there. But it's fascinating that today, still, Jericho is the capital of the PLO, of Israel's enemies. You see parallels here? It's shocking when you really start to add them all up. So anyway, he, so they're, they're subject to him for 18 years. 18 years, when you're, especially when you're under oppression, is a long time. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. They say he's left-handed. Now, this is an unfortunate... The Benjaminites, you may not realize unless you study your scripture, were known for being ambidextrous. Ambidextrous. Uh, you'll find that in uh, Judges 20, we'll see it, and First Chronicles 1. They were skilled warriors, and one of their skills was ambidextry. They could use... with Whatever they used, they could do with either hand. Now, this one, he's a Benjamite, but he is impaired in his right hand. That's why it's tra- the, the Hebrew implies left-handedness, but if you understand how the, the grammar is structured, it really implies that he has he's impeded on the right or shut up on the right. And so it, it could be translated, he's handicapped with his right hand. And when you understand that, the whole story starts to make more sense. He isn't just left-handed. We have left-handed people in our culture. It's, you know, in those days it was considered a curse, but that's neither here nor there. The point is he was impaired with his right hand is the point, and he's going to take advantage of that. And he's going to turn that liability into an asset before we're through here. So Ehud made himself a dagger. Now, apparently they're due to bring him a present, bring this king of Moab a present. Probably his tribute, the taxes. But he's also, from his weight, you can gather he's also likes to eat. While they're making in the kitchen, the, the, the caterers are preparing the food for him, Ehud goes to his workshop and he makes a dagger, that a double-edged dagger. And how long is it? About a cubit. A cubit is somewhere between 18 and 22 inches, depending on what cubit you're using. And he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. Now, if you understand that conventional use of a sword for a right-hander is to have the sword on the left side. You ever notice that with a a, a duty officer on watch? The sword is on his left side. Because right-handedness is the tradition. Okay? What he does, he's left-handed. He's also apparently crippled on his right so he hides the dagger on his right side, which is the opposite place where you'd expect it. If somebody's frisking you, they wouldn't think of frisking you there in those days. Okay. So when he brought a present to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. And he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. 
The quarries is a term for idols. It's some kind of milestone. It's like, it's like a point of reference. Now, the, the word quarries means idol or pillars or what have you. Some scholars speculate this may be the very stones that Joshua's, the 12 stones that were put up right there by the Jordan, because we even have John the Baptist chide his critics as God is raised, able to raise up from these stones, sons of Abraham. He may be pointing those same stones. So there's some belief that they were prevalent there at the memorial. So what he did, he turned again from this milestone place that were by Gilgal. Remember, that's where Joshua crossed over. You remember, this is all right, this is all happening right there. And of course, Jericho is where the king's palace is. He says, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king. So he apparently tells the king he's got a secret message from God for the king. So the king says, keep silent. He wants to hear it privately. That was the, that's part of the plan. So all that stood by him went out from him. Okay? There's a picture I thought you'd enjoy. Uh, that, of course, is actually a picture of Jabba the Hutt. But I'm being facetiously suggestive that maybe that was the inspiration of Jabba the Hutt, because that's the way I visualize Eglon, the king of Moab. But I thought I'd throw that in just for your amusement. Well, Ehud came to him. So you probably think I'm exaggerating. Wait to see what happens here. Ehud came to him, and he was sitting in his summer parlor. This is a cooling parlor. It's typically on the rooftop. It's like a rooftop atrium, because in the Middle East, that's where it's cool. In the, sitting in the summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. So he's by himself. And who said, uh, Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee, and he rose up out of his seat. That gives him an excuse to get close, because this is a confidential thing. Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft, the handle, also went in after the blade. So I don't know how this, let's assume we got about a 20-inch blade here, and we got, what, maybe a 10-inch handle? You're talking about a 30-inch penetration here. And the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not withdraw the dagger out of his belly. And the dirt came out. It's uh, parshedon in the Hebrew. It uh, actually means excrement or feces. Uh, some translators infer that the word may be referring to entrails or intestines. But in any case, uh, Ehud is over. He's history. I mean, here's this cripple. I mean, what harm can a cripple do, right? Did they frisk him? Probably not seriously. So he's alone with the king, and of course he... He kills the king. He'd locked the doors. He went through the porch, shut the doors of the parlor upon him, and locked them. And when he's gone out, his servants came, and they saw that. Behold, the doors of the parlor were locked. They said, surely, this is great, surely he covereth his feet in a summer chamber. Now, you can understand King James' ancient language all you like. You'll never unsort what that means. That's a, that's a euphemism in the Hebrew. He covereth his feet. What does that mean? It's a euphemism for an act that's performed while stooping, causing the feet to be covered. What does that mean? What, what, what's our euphemism? He's in the bathroom, okay? The servants assume that he's uh, dealing with something there. And uh, so they tarried until they were ashamed. And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore they took the key, opened them, and behold, their Lord was fallen down dead upon the earth. Three beholds. The servants were uh, confronted with three surprises. Behold, the doors were locked. Uh, and behold, he doesn't open them after a certain length of time. And behold, they discover him dead. And in all that 
because they're tarrying and not doing something, that gives Ehud a chance to make his getaway, which of course he did. So Ehud escaped while they tarried, passed beyond the quarries, that this, this milestone place, and escaped unto Sirath, with his, which is in the area of Ephraim. It came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim. So he's not through yet. This is just step one. But he seized upon the initiative here. And uh, the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he before them. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. See, doing the deal, uh, hitting uh, the king, is only part of it. He has to mo- uh, arouse and motivate and lead the rest of these guys to take advantage of the situation. Follow me. Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies and the Moabites into your hand. Not my hand, your hand. They went down after him and they took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. In other words, they cut off the fords, the crossing over places in the Jordan, for two reasons. That way the Moabites couldn't, from the palace could not escape, and they also could not get reinforcements from their allies. Okay? And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. In other words, they're fighting professionals. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for score years. As I was going through this, I couldn't help but re- think of the strange episode in Mount Carmel. You remember how, how Elijah confronts the priests of Baal again on this, this standoff. We each put up an altar. If your God lights yours, we know he's God. If you will know who's God. And, of course, the priests had the first crack at it, so they set up their fire, all the stuff on their part of the hill, and early morning, all day, finally get to about noon, they're doing all their chants and procedures, and, of course, nothing happens. And then Elijah starts taunting them. Gee, maybe your God is hard of hearing. Maybe, you know, and, and there's one phrase in there in the Hebrew, in the uh, King James, maybe he's pursuing. You miss that in the Hebrew, it means maybe he's taking a leak. Elijah is making fun. And, and of course, finally, and they're cutting them. They have ritual cuttings they do and stuff. They're making a mess, and they're not getting anywhere. He says, okay, guys. So he calmly takes these stones, makes his altar. But then he puts a handicap. He puts a trench about it, douses the whole thing with water three times. Not once, three times. Golfers understand this. It's called a handicap, right? And, of course, he prays to God, and God... Fire comes down and consumes the altar. And so obviously, impressive, impressive demonstration that God is God. But Elijah doesn't just leave it there. The same thing Ehud does. He has them chase and kill the 450 priests of Baal. Interesting. Same parallel in some respects. Anyway, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest, what, again, 80 years, four score, 80 years of peace. Because of Ehud. Great, great victory. Ehud was the instrument. Well, we got one more. Now, we've had these long things. This one, this guy, has one verse. Just one verse in the Scripture. Verse 31. Little, one, little, sort of a footnote, if you will, in the book of Judges. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. That's it. You can search the scriptures. Can you more about this guy? Does somebody ever celebrate him? What's going on? And uh, he's, he's alluded to in one or two places. One little verse, but relevant, very relevant achievement. He was a martial arts specialist, apparently. He took an ox goad. Now, what on earth is an ox goad? 
It is about an eight-foot-long pole with an iron prong at one end to goad animals. Some of them had a spade on the other to clean the plow. It's the only weapon he was allowed because his enemies had confiscated all the weapons. Whenever you're going to press a group, the first thing you've got to do is pick up all the guns. Okay, And that's exactly what they did. We'll see in chapter 5, verse 8, and they're also in 1 Samuel 13, that the enemies always confiscate all the weapons of the Israelites. So this is all he had. He's a farmer. And with it, he killed 600 men. Not necessarily in one engagement. We don't know anything about it. If it's one engagement, that is impressive. If it's not in one engagement, it's still impressive. 600 guys, we can't even count that high. Overlook here. He, he's called the son of Anath. Now, uh, that could mean he's from the town of Beth Anath in Naphtali. That's one conjecture, which is the tribe that Barak comes from. He's the general in the next chapter we're going to get into. But also, Anath was also the name for the Canaanite goddess of war. And so calling him a son of Anath could be a nickname for a warrior. He's a son of the battle. That's, that's what it, it could be. We should talk a little bit about the weapons of war. When God goes to war, He usually chooses the most unlikely soldiers. He hands them the weirdest weapons and then accomplishes through them the most unpredictable results. We're going to see that all through the Scripture. Shamgar had this ox goad, and he killed 600 men. Yael, in the next chapter, is a mean gal with a hammer. Because she spikes this captain through the skull and pins him to the ground, which is, turns out to be permanent. Um. <laughs> Gideon downsizes his army from 32,000 to 300 and then gives the, arms them with a pitcher inside of which is a smoldering torch. And with that, they rout the entire Midianite army. It's going to be a great series there in chapters uh, 6 and 7. And of course, Samson's familiar to most of us. He has the jawbone of an ass in which he slaughters a thousand Philistines. And there, I do believe it was at one time. He apparently was in a, a, a very narrow valley and was able to focus and and they kept coming, and uh, apparently the Philistines didn't learn easy, easily either. Um, and then David, kid, a stone with a shepherd's sling, kills the Nephilim, this giant. You know, there's an interesting passage in 1 Corinthians which speaks of the foolishness of God as wiser than men. We read that in the context, you just go through it. You've got to stumble on that phrase. The foolishness of God. That sounds like an oxymoron. How can God be foolish? How can you have the foolishness of God? Where's the foolishness of God? Well, this is part of it. Having this guy kill six men with an ox goad, not even a machine gun, um, hammer and tent peg, pitchers and torches, jawbone of an ass, stone from a shepherd's sling. You can go through the scripture and notice that God does the oddest things. He decides to save only eight people out of the old world. And he has Noah build a barge to save the people. Strange way. What is the most foolishness, in quotes, of all? What is the foolishness? The ultimate foolishness of God. The cross erected in Judea 2,000 years ago. He's going to alter the destiny of the entire universe. But it's a reaction to this cross. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. 
But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Do you know the interesting about that verse is it divides everything into two parts. You're either perishing or saved. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is indeed the power of God. Well, Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar were the first three judges. They have shown us the way. The question really is, are we going to follow? The only thing that these guys brought to the table was their availability. When God called, they were available. You don't get the impression they were trained warriors. They couldn't be. They're farmers, whatever. But I, I couldn't help but remember a poem I read as a kid, and I dug it up, that I thought I'd just end with as we finish tonight, by Edward Rowland Sill. It's called Opportunity. This I beheld, or dreamed it in a dream, there spread a cloud of dust along a plain, and underneath the cloud, or in it, raged a furious battle, and men yelled, and swords shocked upon swords and shields. A prince's banner wavered, and then staggered backward, hemmed by foes. A craven hung along the battle's edge and thought, Had I a sword of keener steel, that blue blade that the king's son bears, but this blunt thing, and he snapped it and flung it from his hand. And lowering, he crept away and left the field. Then came the king's son, wounded, sore bestead and weaponless. He saw the broken sword, hilt buried in the dry and trodden sand, and ran and snatched it. And with a battle shout lifted afresh, he hewed his enemy down and saved a great cause that heroic day. Edward Rowland Still. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we just praise you, Father. We just thank you that you allow us to gather here without being oppressed by our enemies. We thank you, Father, for the freedom to meet here as we do. But above all, Father, we thank you for your word, that we have it so available to us. And we thank you, Father, that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that we have the ultimate deliverer ever living to make intercession for us. We thank you, Father, that we have these incredible resources at our disposal. And Father, we come to your throne with no weapons of our own, nothing to offer. In fact, having nothing on our hearts but to beg forgiveness. To beg forgiveness of all our sins, to beg forgiveness of our ingratitude, our presumption, allowing our priorities to get in the way of what you would have in our lives. Oh, Father, we desperately seek your forgiveness. We pray, Father, that you would, in your patient way, just continue to help each of us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And Father, all that we bring before your throne is our availability. You alone know the end from the beginning, and we would simply seek to know what you would have of each of us 
in the days that remain, that we too, in a small way, would prove faithful to what you would have us do. That we could acquit ourselves of the opportunities before us in a way that would please you, Father. We thank you, Father, for the country in which we live. We thank you for the heritage that we're beneficiaries of. And yet we've disparaged it, despised it, ignored it. Oh, Father, we just commit ourselves to you without any reservation. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.